July 1781, the Quechans rose up to kill the Spaniards who had set up settlement along the Colorado River near its junction with the Gila. After seven years of watching the Spanish come and go and helping them get from Arizona to California, they had enough of abuses and broken promises. You'll remember from episode 12 that they massacred the Spanish, including Friar Francisco Garces, nearly to a man. And with that, the vital river crossing at the Colorado was closed. Little did the Spanish know that this revolt would mean the end of their land route to California Alta. They made at least one attempt to get it up and going again, but as Anza predicted, with the natives as their enemies, the crossing was near impossible. Well, life went on. Spain was kicked out of the New World, and Mexico didn't try to start up the old land route either. But now, Almost 80 years since their successful revolt, the Quechans would have to deal with new upstarts looking to capitalize on their river crossing. And this time, they would not be so lucky. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 24, Crossing the Colorado. Last week, we discussed the influx of Yankees taking the southern route to California as part of the 1849 gold rush. We mainly concentrated on the interaction of these companies with the citizens of Tucson, the only real Mexican settlement left in what would become Arizona. But today, I want to turn our attention further west to the all-important crossing of the Colorado River. Since the days of Anza, nearly eight decades beforehand, how to get across this river was the biggest question to a stable land route to California. The Quechans, however trepidatious they were about the sudden presence of so many Americans on the banks of the Colorado, initially cashed in on the opportunity and offered to swim goods and animals to the other side. This is where the comment from last week comes in about them occasionally drowning a good mule or two in the name of an easy meal. They also at one point in 1849 had procured a small ferry boat for this operation, though many of the Americans found their service unreliable. Around September 1849, Lieutenant Cave Johnson Coots, who had been with the Graham expedition when it went through Tucson the previous year, and was now working for the Joint Mexican-U.S. Boundary Commission, which we will deal with in a couple weeks, set up his own service to help travelers. Decoots also goes the credit of establishing Camp Calhoun on the California side of the river, which would be renamed Camp Yuma in 1851. As just another fascinating if true tidbit, for his ferry, Coots is reported by early state historian Thomas Farish to have purchased the flat boat Dr. Howard and his family had used. You might recall from last week that Mrs. Howard might have the honor of birthing the first baby of American parentage in Arizona. Camp Calhoun was a welcome respite for wagon trains, who often arrived at the Colorado completely exhausted from heat and from some of the harshest parts of the Sonoran Desert they just had to get through. Getting supplies to the outpost was always a chore, though, as they had to get them shipped overland from San Diego, 
which was yet another long stretch of desert with very little water. After only two months, Coots was replaced by Mexican representatives of the Boundary Commission at the end of 1849, and they ran the ferry for a brief time. One of the workers of this ferry was none other than the son of Agustin de Iturbide, the once emperor of Mexico. In early 1850, ferry operations were taken over by an entrepreneur named Dr. Abel L. Lincoln. Business was booming, and it is reported that he made $60,000 in just three months. While $60,000 in three months is still a lot of money today, if you account for inflation, Dr. Lincoln was able to earn just shy of $2 million in 2020 dollars. That's not bad work if you can get it. But here's the twist. Somehow, Lincoln acquired a business partner in this venture named John Joel Glanton. Now, Glanton is not a good guy. Ruthless and murderous, he was a paid scalp hunter, though he didn't seem to limit himself to just the Apaches, but had gone after Opatas and Odom as well. These indiscretions, according to Farish at least, made Mexico too hot for him, so he went across the border into the U.S. I have one source that claims Lincoln was forced to take him on as a business partner, suggesting that Glanton had strong-armed his way into the ferry business. And one of the first things Glanton decided to do was get rid of the competition. According to some sources, he, um, eliminated the head of a rival Quechin ferry, though state historian Thomas Sheridan says that he merely went for mob-style intimidation tactics. According to Sheridan, Glanton threatened a Quechan chief and promised to kill one Indian for every Mexican they ferried across the river. He was also unscrupulous when it came to gouging those who wanted to use his services, coming down especially hard on Sonorans coming back from California. If you remember one thing about me, make it that I have a finely honed sense of schadenfreude when it comes to people like Glanton. So please excuse the hint of glee in my voice while I regale you with how he eventually got his comeuppance. After suffering a very short time under his extortion and intimidation, the questions decided they were not going to take it anymore. On April 21st, 1850, they rose up and, clubs in hand, bashed in the heads of Glanton and nearly every one of the band of ruffians he kept around him. It appears Dr. Lincoln was guilty by association, and the club was put to his head as well. And, just so you know, I've seen two different versions of what happened to all the gold Glanton had been hoarding from his business. State historian Marshall Trimble reports that the gold the gang had stashed was never recovered. However, Farish says that the Quetchins made off with somewhere between fifteen dollars and $30,000 worth of gold, which they used to purchase supplies off the Yankees, though they are said to have overpaid, not really understanding the value of all the coins they had. A few others tried their hand at operating the ferry, though they always had to contend with the Quetchins, who were usually hostile, though not murderously so. Americans would actually withdraw from the business in 1851, though more enterprising souls would be back the next year. One note for all this ferry business is that the Sonorans were usually the targets of Yankee extortion. Starting back with Coots, under the direction of California's first customs director, the Americans would often even cross onto Mexican soil to make sure Sonorans paid their proper duties. 
Mexicans were often stripped of their arms and any valuable possessions. These abuses became so bad that small skirmishes broke out, with Mexicans firing on Americans trying to take away their goods. Mexican officials up and down the chain of command began preparing depositions and lists of grievances, though nothing was ultimately done. Things got even worse in 1850 when California passed the Foreign Miners Tax, which imposed a $20 per month payment on Mexicans and others digging for gold. Though there was little to be done, this heavy-handed tax incensed people across Sonora. Worse yet, even if a Mexican miner paid this tax, it would still not keep American claim jumpers from just taking whatever they wanted. All of this would lead to the decline in Mexicans heading toward the gold fields. One last bit of history before we wrap up our look at the Colorado Crossing. As I said, the Americans actually gave up on Fort Yuma in operating the ferry in 1851, but the next year, they came back. Louis J.F. Yeager was the new operator, and the business seemed as profitable as ever. The real thing that sets Yeager's experience apart, though, is the reopening of Fort Yuma in 1852, this time under the command of Major Samuel Heiselman who had been stationed at San Diego. Like most army officers of the time, Heinzelman mixed his professional duties with business interests, becoming a major investor in the Colorado Ferry Company. It's here that control of the ferry industry was really taken away permanently from the Quechans. Around this time, we also see more and more Yankees deciding to set up shop in the area, eventually leading in a couple years to the founding of Colorado City, which would go through a couple name changes before its current moniker, Yuma, was settled on in 1871. The year after the reopening of Fort Yuma, we get another momentous event. In 1853, Captain George Johnson piloted the steamship General Jessup up to Fort Yuma. The ship could haul 50 tons of freight at the price of $75 a ton, starting the business of bringing goods up the Colorado River from the Gulf of California in the age before railroads. The General Jessup had a very good run. At its most profitable, it was making 20000 a month on hauling freight. We'll have much more to say about steamships and their role in exploring Arizona in future episodes. But I want to turn our attention to the major events happening back in Tucson at the beginning of the 1850s. As if the promise of quick gold wasn't incentive enough to leave Upper Sonora, the Apaches continued to provide just that extra bit of encouragement. In February 1850, a column in the state newspaper described attacks across much of Sonora, including on Santa Cruz and Tucson in late December and early January. In the case of Tucson, the January 6th raid had managed to catch a lone vaquero outside the walls tending to a herd, all of which they managed to drive off. And, can you guess the next part yet? A lack of good horses prevented anyone from the settlement from giving chase. But the Apaches weren't the only problem on everyone's mind. Complaints started piling up about the fact that Tucson had not been visited by a priest in more than a year. Tucson children were growing up without being baptized, and couples, 
either unable or unwilling to take the journey south to find a priest, were now living together without being officially married. For a staunch Catholic town, this was an intolerable state of affairs. Finally, Tucson's Justice of the Peace drafted a petition calling for a priest to be assigned to the military colony. Into this, he included the Odom living at San Javier del Bac, writing, quote, The children of 50 Indian families are growing up heathens, end quote. The petition was sent off, and Tucson waited for an answer. While they waited for the answer to that problem, the first and arguably much bigger problem, suddenly came back. On the morning of December 16th, 1850, around 9 o'clock in the morning, a force of more than 350 Apaches swept down on Tucson out of the Catalina Mountains. Caught unprepared, people fled in whatever direction they could, seeking any sort of shelter. The Apaches, who had the settlement virtually surrounded, killed four people, gravely wounded another, and captured two young boys and four Apache Monso's women. That's in addition to all the livestock they were able to round up too. After gathering all their ill-gotten gains, a funny thing happened. The Apaches suddenly massed at the north wall of the town and shouted out a message. If you can believe it, this group of raiders called out that they actually just wanted to live in peace. I know what you're thinking. They certainly had a funny way of showing it. But a corporal and nine of his men decided to take the Apache at their word and came out of the Presidio to parley with them. And, believe it or not, things went great. The two sides embraced each other and both gave away small gifts as token of their goodwill. The Apache said they were willing to turn back over all the captives and animals they had just rounded up in addition to other captives they had taken in previous raids along the Santa Cruz Valley. What the Apaches relayed is that what they really wanted was a chance to come and go as they pleased, and share in the Mexicans' prosperity and bury all the old hatchets. In route, in fact, several of the band had quarreled, with the Pinal Apache in particular arguing for not attacking the town. They had even brought some of their captives with them to demonstrate their sincerity. The Pinal had even withdrawn from the initial attack, waiting while the more hostile bands rode up to Tucson. They even produced a Mexican who had been captured as a small child to head into the Presidio and negotiate on behalf of the Apaches. So, this is great. We are on the verge of a whole new era of peace. Maybe things can go back to the way they were in the 1790s. Well... Just when all started to look like it was heading in that direction, one of those ironic twists of fate that history loves so much happened. Because when the attack first hit, some had fled south to San Javier del Bac. Once there, the Odom were informed that the Apaches were attacking Tucson in mass. So the Odom geared up for a counterattack and immediately rode north. You can probably see where this is going. With no way of knowing about the peace settlement, and only seeing a bunch of Apache camped out around Tucson, the Odom charged right in. Three Apache were killed with many more wounded. In complete disarray, the Apache fled, with the Odom following close behind. And just like that, 
one of the best chances of even a temporary peace in years had been dashed to pieces. As Sheridan put it, quote, In the chaos of mid-19th century Arizona, peace was often measured in hours, not years. End quote. On March 3, 1851, one of the Apache Monsa women who had been captured during the December raid suddenly appeared on the doorstep of Tucson commander Captain Jose Antonio Comodaron. She claimed that she had managed to escape from her captor several days earlier and had immediately made a beeline for Tucson. All the hostile Apaches between the Colorado River and the White Mountains, she said, were determined to fall on Tucson and destroy it. For the last three months, they had been celebrating their last attack with plenty of dancing, stolen beef, and mezcal. The planned attack was for the next full moon, though the Apache were still arguing over the exact strategy. Finally, she delivered the news that the Americans were the principal suppliers of the firearms and ammunition these Apache were carrying. Comodaran was understandably alarmed by this news and quickly dashed off a communique to his new superior officer, Colonel Jose Maria Carrasco. This letter conveyed all the standard bullet points we have come to expect. A lot of hostile Apache coming, not enough soldiers, not enough guns, not enough ammunition, and no help so far from the central government. You might imagine Comodoran's disappointment then when Carrasco responded on March 28th with a letter that sympathized, but promised no help. Fortunately, it appears that the Apaches were either all talk or decided against the raid because it never happened. But for Comodoran, it was yet another reminder that Tucson was basically on its own. Though he wasn't sending any help, Carrasco was making changes to Mexico's military colonies to hopefully make them better for the soldiers living there. At the same time he was lending a sympathetic, but ultimately worthless, ear to Comodoran, Carrasco reconfigured the salaries and payment schedules for soldiers in an effort to bolster recruitment and cut down on desertions. He also wrote that the government was contracting with private parties to supply grain for the army. Soldiers could still farm for what they needed, but in theory, these contracts would provide enough grain to feed 150 men for a year. Finally, Carrasco revamped administration and made a clear delineation between military and civilian government. In places such as Tucson, with a long history of civilian oversight, military commanders had no jurisdiction over civilians except in times of emergency. In other locations that had been founded as military colonies originally, the commanders were to have purview over everyone. Now, the changeover from presidios to military colonies would not go over very well. One of the ideas had been that soldiers could work a plot of land to feed themselves, thus relying less on the presidio to keep them, you know, alive. As we just saw, though, Carrasco wasn't sure the resources of the Santa Cruz Valley were enough to allow this to work, so he went with private contracts for grain. His successor, José María Flores, on the other hand, would quickly run into problems. Because the government had also begun promising a plot of land to soldiers who served a six-year hitch in one of these military colonies. 
and soon word came down from Flores to people like Tucson Justice of the Peace Miguel Pacheco to turn a bunch of land over to the military. That meant Pacheco had to actually go to the farm of a retired soldier, who had served in the Tucson garrison for 24 years before retiring in 1829, and tell him he had to vacate his land. Protests started flying fast and furious over this, especially as this soldier had lawfully paid for the land and even had a grant given to him from the Tucson Justice of the Peace when he had retired. Others quickly rose up and complained that these new laws didn't make any sense in an area like Tucson, where there wasn't really any vacant land around. Everything in the area was cultivated when citizens felt like it was safe to go out and do so. Which brings us to the second complaint. Soldiers shouldn't have to be farmers when they were still living on a tiny island amid a swirling sea of hostile Apaches. Now, the military colonies managed to do some good, in that they breathed temporary life back into the abandoned Tubac. Though the date is uncertain, sometime in the late summer or early fall of 1851, the settlement was re-established as a military colony. According to historian James Officer, among the settlers of the revived colony were a party of Mormons who had been on their way to California. As they were passing through the Santa Cruz Valley, at probably the best time of the year, they decided to stay after locals offered them some land. Unfortunately, Officer notes that this group did not stay for long before moving on again. We also see Flores at this time leading a raid against the Apaches, which took him as far north as the Gila River. He also took the opportunity to rattle his saber in front of some American freebooters who were hanging out on Mexican soil. Flores, however, seems to have had a military-first style of thinking that failed to endear himself to really anyone. Complaints were lodged against him by both the military colony of Santa Cruz and by Tucson Justice of the Peace Pacheco for billeting his men inside of the town church. The old Presidio Church, Pacheco complained to Flores' superiors, may be run down and even a bit dilapidated, but it was still a house of God. All these issues between civilians and their new military overlords are not going to be fully settled before Tucson suddenly finds itself inside the United States, and will, in fact, only get worse in the last few years of Mexican rule. During this same time, so 1850 and 1851, Sonora was struck by yet another hard blow. Remember last week when I mentioned a cholera epidemic that was slowly closing in? Well, this is where that now comes into play. Worse than just a straight epidemic, Sonora was fighting a two-front war, as the sickness was spreading from the east, but also now coming in from the west. It seems that miners returning from the field in California had also brought the disease with them. Reports in the Sonoran State newspaper indicate that the port city of Guaymas began reporting cases first in late 1850, as miners took the sea route back home. By early December, the Amerindians around Hermosillo began getting sick. In less than two weeks, cholera was raging through the city. In early 1851, Flores wrote to the governor to specifically say that Tucson was not able to defend itself because it only had 20 men who were currently ready to fight. Nine soldiers had already died from cholera, and the disease had stricken many more, he wrote. 
At the same time, he also mentions how the settlement of Santa Cruz was also suffering. And the Altar Valley was worse off than anywhere else. By the end of July 1851, the resident priests for the Altar Valley Parish reported more than 1,100 had been killed. This is where we also find the end of Carrasco, who had been named Inspector General. He died at Guaymas on July 21st at the age of 38. Had he lived, maybe his view for military colonies may have won out and Sonora would have been spared some of the pain it was about to go through. And though it is not conclusively recorded, this epidemic might have also been the end to someone much more central to our story. Captain Jose Antonio Comodaran of Tucson. Flores doesn't name the men who died in Tucson in his letter, but all the existing evidence seems to point to Comodoran being gone from his post between March and mid-April 1851. In response to another native raid on April 19th, we find someone else leading the charge. And when Apaches struck near Calabasas at the end of July, the report is forwarded up the chain by the Tucson Justice of the Peace, rather than the fort commander, another suggestion that no one was in the post. You might not have noticed it, but Comodoran has been a presence in our story for quite some time now. I first mentioned him as a young ensign back in episode 16, when he rode out in 1823 to make sure that the Romero expedition to California was still alive. I called him Antonio Comodoran at the time, as my sources only rarely use his full name of Jose Antonio Comodoran. He had been born in Arispe in 1797, during the golden years of peace by purchase, and had been stationed at Tucson since around 1818. And, except for a few brief postings elsewhere, Tucson would always be his home. Here's just a brief rundown of events he had participated in that we've discussed. He was one of a small company that rode north to the Gila River in the mid-1820s to investigate the first sighting of Americans in Arizona. By 1828, he is listed as the commander of the Tucson Presidio. He signed a peace treaty with the Pinal Apache in 1836, even if such treaties never lasted long. He was in charge of Tucson during the Papago War, sending out peace feelers to have the Odom lay down their arms in exchange for amnesty. He has led numerous charges against the Apaches, almost too many to mention. It was he who retreated to San Javier del Bac when the Mormon Battalion came through and took over. He had dealt with two soldier rebellions, one of which caused him to flee to Urus itself. And finally, he has been one of the most vocal agitators, begging the central government to send more men, firearms, and ammunition to protect the frontier. My sources unfortunately don't give me much sense of the man, but as just a soldier, he has lived through incredibly turbulent times and saw the passing of Spanish power, the haphazard establishment of Mexico, and the arrival of the Norte Americanos. He was either 53 or 54 when he died, and despite the way he went, it's probably a good thing he finally got some rest. I don't know about you, but I'm going to miss him. Speaking of missing people, we have one more changing of the guard to discuss. If you pay attention at all to names and positions, which I will admit is pretty hard considering how often these things change, you might have noticed that during the last year or so of his life, Comodoran was reporting to first Carrasco and then Flores. 
But for the longest time, he's been writing his letters to the military commander of Sonora, Jose Maria Elias Gonzalez. Well, the reason for this change is that Elias Gonzalez has also now passed from our story. He's not dead, at least, you know, not yet. But in 1850, he would retire from his post. Elias Gonzalez, part of that powerful clan that controlled most of the politics and business in northern Sonora, had been born in Arispe way back in 1772. So when the Presidio reforms of Rubí were just being enacted, Remember that far back? Elios Gonzalez was named military commander for Sonora in 1835 and has been a regular reoccurring character in our story. Back in episode 18, I mentioned how in 1835 he convinced Apaches to settle at Sonoida in order to avoid a fight between them and the Odom. He also signed the Penal Peace Treaty with Comandaran in 1836. He was always chomping at the bit to take the fight to the Apache, and I've forgotten now how many times he sent letter after letter begging for men, supplies, and the authority to lead a large army up into the Apacheria. And in 1844, he led an invasion of the state of Chihuahua because of the sentiment at the time that they were arming the Apaches, which went on to attack Sonora. We covered that back in episode 19. He's also the one that gathered an army and rushed to Tucson after the exaggerated reports about hostile American hordes, in reality, the Mormon battalion, having taken the Presidio. Finally, he was briefly governor of Sonora during one of the endless rounds of fighting between the Urrea and Gandra political factions. But in 1850, after 15 years in the hot seat, he retired at the age of 78, which is kind of mind-blowing given the times. And he would actually go on to live for well over a decade, remaining active in politics until his death in 1864 at the age of 92. So, yeah, things are changing fast up along the Sonoran frontier. And in a few years, that Sonoran frontier is going to be looking a lot different in that it will no longer be in Sonora. So join me next week as we turn our attention back to the Americans and their first forays into really seeing what Arizona has to offer. And we'll also wrap up the last years of Mexican rule before the Pimeria Alta is given up for good. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona.